0: has never heard a Section 230 case, until now. Earlier this month, the justices agreed to review Gonzalez versus Google, in which the plaintiffs argue that YouTube's targeted recommendation of videos falls outside Section 230 immunity. In a sense, targeted recommending is what all major platforms do and must do in order to provide a usable product. On the vast modern internet, curation of information is an essential service. So it is hard to overstate the potential ramifications of this case for the web. Section 230 is, of course, the law that, with limited exceptions, protects platforms from large websites and apps, individual blogs, and social media accounts, from liability for disseminating speech created by others. In recent years, this law has become a subject of incessant criticism. But does it follow that we wouldn't miss it? That's the arresting question the Supreme Court, in taking this of all Section 230 cases, has forced us to confront. This is the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. Because Section 230 and all that it protects is now under threat, seems like a good time to do an episode in which we reflect on how we got Section 230, why Section 230 is important, what benefits and drawbacks Section 230 creates, and why the criticisms of Section 230 from both the left and the right tend to miss the mark. I'm very pleased to be joined for this conversation by Emma Lonzo, the director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Emma, you are the perfect guest for this topic. Welcome.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: Um I on this one really um this story has been told in in a lot of places by many people, but I think it's worth getting into here, you know, the history of section 230 because um section 230 has a has a claim to be perhaps one of the most misunderstood laws in the US code and to understand the text, um, I think a little bit of the history is, is very helpful. So could you, uh, you know, and we can break this down, don't feel that you have to get cover the whole thing in one <laughs> go here, we can do a back and forth. But you know, how, why is there a section 230? You know, sort of what's the germ? What's the Cox Wyden story of, of how the law arose?
1: Yes, it's a, it's a great story, it could potentially fill an entire book, um, as you know, just Jeff Kossif has written. Um, but the kind of the short version is there's the sort of practical legal origins of Section 230 and then the kind of political origins and practically legally what was happening in the early to mid 90s around online content hosting and the sort of first development of uh, legal doctrine around what these new online intermediaries like message boards or forums online um were going to face for when users shared illegal content that was starting to be worked out in the courts and there were a couple of cases that had um pretty concerning uh outcomes as far as the the whole sort of project of third-party content hosting. Um, So these were the Cubby versus CompuServe and Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy cases. Um, And they basically, we can dig into the more of the specifics if you'd like to, but the basic upshot was that in the Cubby versus CompuServe case, um, where a user had posted uh, illegal content on the CompuServe service, CompuServe was really hands-off. They did not do moderation of content. They weren't really trying to review or take down content. And when a court looked at this, they said, you know basically you're a distributor of this content, there's no reason for the court to expect CompuServe to know that illegal content's on their service and to take it down, CompuServe was shielded from liability for the user content. In the Prodigy case though, Prodigy took a much more active role in moderating the content in its forums, it would try to keep people on topic, it would try to take down profanity and uh, different kinds of inappropriate content. And it missed a post or it didn't consider a post to be potentially against its guidelines um, that ended up being the subject of, I think it was a defamation claim. Um, And in looking at everything that Prodigy did, the court in that case said, that really looks like some traditional editorial sort of functions. This is the sort of thing we expect a newspaper to do when reviewing letters to the editors. that seems like Prodigy should sit squarely in kind of traditional publisher liability, which means you're liable if you end up kind of further publishing defamation or, or other illegal content. That was a big concern um, because and that was, it was something that um, representatives Cox and at the time, Representative Wyden um, kind of got together and were talking to each other about they could really see the path that that would take those two cases together strongly incentivized all of these different new online services to basically bury their heads in the sand to try not to do moderation to try not to do anything to keep their services useful or functional or limit the spread of profanity or indecent content or any other kind of material that they might not want on their services or that their users might not want um, the legal incentive would be don't do moderation. Don't take steps. Don't do anything that could put you in this category of potentially being a publisher. Um, and so being pretty savvy, uh, in the, in the mid nineties, Cox and Wyden got together and we're trying to think of what is, what is the better approach? What is the way that they could actually encourage online services to take action against objectionable content, um, and really came to the idea that it was to shield them from liability for what illegal content their users might post.
0: Uh, Representative Chris Cox, the Republican, Representative Ron Wyden, uh, Democrat, so it was was, uh, bipartisan legislation at its core. I do, the story is so great, you know, that they had had lunch before discovering the Prodigy case and discussed the difficulty of creating bipartisan legislation and had, really, actually, the, the brilliant stroke in this was that they said to each other, we need to find some issue where the priors have not solidified, where everybody doesn't already have a preset notion about how things should be, which is actually a little funny, well, ruefully funny in hindsight, because now there's such bipartisan uh, anger directed at section 230. Um, the prodigy decision is is very blatant. Um, I, I like the way Cox describes it. He says, congratulations for trying, is how he summarizes prodigy, which literally said, that in trying to, and Prodigy said it was family values they wanted to impose, right? So for trying to impose family values, they got uh, greater liability than CompuServe and other computer networks that make no such choice to do so. I mean, literally said. Um, so we get, um, I'll, I'll actually just read it. So section 230C1, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So usually on the internet, only the initial speaker of a statement can be held liable for what the statement says. That, in a nutshell, is the import of that sentence. Um, That gets passed. So maybe the next step we should go to is how how it came to be known as the Communications Decency Act. What happened to the Communications Decency Act? And then maybe we can dive into sort of the, what was Section 230's early effect?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so this is the sort of political part of the history of Section 230. So Cox and Wyden work out, working with um, a number of of other folks in DC at the time, including a a working group CDT helped to run back in the day. Yes, I'll Um, I'll,
0: I'll, I'll pump you up so you don't have to. So (laughs) you're at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Cox and, and Wyden needed expertise in drafting those words I just wrote or read, sorry. Um, and so Jerry Berman, founder and president of CDT, was one of the people in the working group that it helped create Section 230. So good work, you That's guys. That's right. Okay, <laughs> proceed.
1: Well, right. It was this idea that this is an important aspect of the law that really needs to get worked out. And you need to have a lot of different kinds of people and kinds of experts at the table. You need to have people who know how the underlying technology works. You need to have people who are thinking about all of the civil liberties implications of requiring or not requiring online services to moderate people's speech, to affect people's access to information. So it was really important to have, you know, the word multi-stakeholder is a mouthful, but it was really important to have a multi-stakeholder approach to figuring out what could this law look like? And what could the potential consequences of it be? Um, But at the, around the same time, um, the uh, Congress was also looking at kind of this internet thing that was really starting to roll out in a big way, um, as far as the kind of the commercial internet um, for many millions of Americans. um, And we're really concerned about the issue of uh, pornography online and basically, Deeply concerned about um, minors' ability to access indecent content, which is typically the legal definition for pornography, um, and in thinking about that issue, and being incredibly um, uh, passionate and maybe a little divorced from reality about the the scope of the issue. Um, What came out of all of that discussion in Congress was what is known as the Communications Decency Act. So this was a law that um, sketched out a whole set of obligations for online intermediaries, um, created a uh, criminal liability for knowingly Transmitting or distributing indecent content to a minor um, would have required age verification of individuals to in order in order for intermediaries to kind of enable adults to access this material that was in fact lawful and constitutionally protected for adults to access. So it was it was this whole scheme for requiring intermediaries to really be the gatekeepers around this particular kind of content online. And Congress kind of had before it these two different options. There was the CDA, which was very much a lots of liability for intermediaries and lots of role for intermediaries in being that gatekeeper and deciding who, which internet users get to have access to what kind of content. And Section 230, which was much more about saying there's no legal obligation for intermediaries to play that gatekeeper role at all, but they have the liability protection they need if they do decide they want to moderate content on their services. And Congress in a spirit of compromise uh, passed both of them (laughs) together in a bill that ended up being called in total the CDA the the communications decency act. um, But which had down in section 509 this clause, the online family empowerment provision, um, which is what created section 230 of the communications act, um, which is the the section 230 that we have today. Um, So it was this sort of sense that i'm not exactly sure how. Congress envisioned the two different liability schemes working with each other. Um, other than that, federal criminal law has has never been something that 230 shields intermediaries from liability for. So uh, they they passed two very different approaches to um, some of these questions and some of these problems. And then the bulk of the CDA the um, the elements of it that really required intermediaries to to place gatekeeper role were immediately challenged um, in court by the ACLU and a whole coalition. CDT was part of it. The American Library Association was part of it. It was a very broad coalition challenging the CDA um, in its relevant parts um, before the Supreme Court. And in 1997, the Supreme Court issued the Reno versus ACLU decision that um, struck down most of the CDA, but left Section two hundred and thirty standing.
0: Yeah, um, it makes me think of uh, Kenneth Shepsel, law professor, has a law review article called "Congress is a They, not an It." And um, so, the Cox-Wyden bill was originally called the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act. And you're, you you put it perfectly. Of you know, how did they envision? these working together. And the word they is doing a lot of lifting in that sentence because I'm not sure there was a coherent uh, idea there. I mean, it worked out given that the Supreme Court, you know, struck down the Senate's anti-porn regulation. So Cox and Wyden's deregulatory effort, you know, passes through this divorce unscathed, but then it keeps the name of its unconstitutional spouse uh, to endless confusion to this day. um yes, well, so we we so so that's what happens. We get section two thirty. We fortunately don't have the true CDA um, and then we get the first major section two thirty decision, uh the Zarin case, immensely important, uh written by J. Harvey Wilkinson, an accomplished judge on the U.S Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Um, And he says, uh, lawsuits seeking to hold an online service provider liable for its exercise of a publisher's traditional editorial functions, such as deciding whether to publish, withdraw, postpone, or alter content are barred. That's sort of the million-dollar sentence in that decision. Um, Could you walk us through, well, if you want to elaborate more on Zarin and, and what it says and then its impact. That would, yeah. I think, be the, the next yeah. good place to go.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, the Zarin case was pivotal. Um, it was one of the, if not the earliest cases um, in interpreting Section 230 and really kind of applying the statutory language in process. A key thing to understand about 230 is there is, we've been talking about section 230 C1. There's also a section 230 C2, C2A, which also specifies that intermediaries are shielded from efforts that they take to restrict access to a whole kind of laundry list of types of content or otherwise objectionable content. And there is always a little bit of a confusion, I think, in people's minds when they first read section 230. It's easy to kind of read the text of the statute and think oh okay so section 230 c1 talks about you know shielding intermediaries from liability for publishing content and then c2 covers shielding intermediaries from decisions to restrict content is that how that the statute sort of works but the zarin case since 1997 has been very clear decision publisher type activity which includes decisions to publish or withdraw content are entire are covered in 230 c1 um, and so that that very clear unconditional sort of liability protection in c1 covers all of the different kinds of activities that an online service a content host in particular but any kind of online service um, might take that fit Anywhere into what we think of as traditional publisher activity. So deciding to continue hosting content, deciding to take it down, deciding to alter or change how it's presented, posting um, it for a while and then withdrawing it, you know, all of that kind of activity, uh, the Zarin case established is part of what the strong liability shield in C1 protects. And that's been really important because the um, Section 230C1 is. In practice, in uh, in court cases, a relatively straightforward kind of liability shield for courts to interpret, and it means that when there are um, lawsuits brought against intermediaries, it's relatively easy for those lawsuits to be dismissed early on in the case. Um, so, if you have somebody who's bringing a lawsuit against an intermediary um, because another user posted defamation about them on their online service, um, it's pretty easy for that intermediate say, you know, I tweet something defamatory about Corbyn, and he wants to sue me in court as this is right, Uh, he can sue me but trying to sue Twitter over that defamation is really not going to go anywhere. And it's, it's not going to go anywhere fast. um, Because courts are going to be able to look and see very early on in the case, Twitter is an interactive computer service, Uh, they are not the provider of the content. Emma was the provider of that content. And what Twitter did falls within this idea of of publishing a third party's content. So if all of those factors are met, the liability shield in C1 applies and the case is dismissed. Um, That ends up being incredibly powerful because it means that online content hosts and other intermediaries can inv- avoid being dragged deeply into lawsuits going through months or even years of litigation running up all of the expenses of um, defending a case of going through things like discovery where you have to turn over enormous amounts of documents about communications within your private communications within your company or your service. Um, it's a really strong protection because it means that intermediaries don't have to have fear that sort of death by lawsuit threat of hosting unpopular content or hosting content that someone wants to bring a lawsuit about. Um, So by enabling services to relatively quickly get cases against them dismissed it frees up intermediaries to be much more willing to host a wide variety of online speech and to host speech that might be unpopular or might be the target of lawsuits um, by some of their users but to know that that's not going to end with either direct liability for the intermediary or this kind of um constant heckling and uh you know, trying to drain the resources of the intermediary so that they just decide to take content down because it's easier than having to um, deal with continued lawsuits and, and legal pressure.
0: That's a great summary. And that answer, you know, that right there, I think, is what gives you the title of uh, Professor Kossoff's book, you know, the 26 words that created the internet, because you have this positive feedback loop where sort of everybody, you know, wins by pinning culpability for illegal content squarely on the person who created it. Section 230 enabled internet services to grow and profit by offering that user-generated content. And then by filling the internet with different speech environments, the services innovation enabled a wide array of people to find places online where they feel comfortable speaking. I mean, I think that's one of the things that gets lost, uh, maybe a little on the on the side of the the left wing criticisms of Section 230 is how much it empowers people who want to criticize uh, power the powerful. I mean, you know, because uh, they don't get shut down the moment that powerful person goes to the platform and says this is defamation, and you know, under a distributor system, that uh, platform is now on notice, and you know, they're not going to. Scrutinize the statement and go. Ah, you know we're going to figure this out as a matter of law. They're just going to shut it down because that's the easier option. Um, the it, we could easily do an entire episode just on sort of uh, bullet points of the the fallacies raised against Section 230. So I'm not going to get too <laughs> far into that. But one I will mention for Zarin, you know, that I think Judge Wilkinson got right back in 1997, that is now popping up again. You know, is this crucial distinction between publisher. And distributor and how it gets abused. And, you know, as, as Judge Wilkinson saw it, Section 230 cannot protect the function of publishing without also protecting the function of distributing, because the greater protection includes the lesser. And uh, we've seen Justice Thomas uh, question that. And um, I think it ties in when we see uh, Judge Oldham in the Fifth Circuit in the Texas case that we've discussed on you know several episodes on the show, he says, Section 230 shows Congress thought um, platforms are not publishers. And that's such a misunderstanding of what that sentence means. And I, I think Judge Wilkinson, he just got this right, right at the beginning. Um, so I recommend people scrutinize his treatment of this, this publisher-distributor, uh, n- non-distinction is actually the way I should put it. You know, So suppose that someone objects to a piece of content hosted by a platform, right? And the platform then knows about the content and knowing about it must decide what to do with it. That's sort of the old distributor standard that we're getting all the way back from Smith versus California. Okay, weird quick aside, Eleazar Smith owns a bookstore in Los Angeles. Uh, He's caught with a book called Sweeter Than Life that the police officer deems obscene. Long story short, Smith gets off the hook at the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court says, well, he didn't know that that book was in the store. So that raises the question, of course, what if he had known? What if somebody went to the desk and said, oh, you've got this book, would that change things? Okay, aside, over, apologies. So the platform knows about the content. Once it knows about the content, It is, it's put to the choice of editorial control. So in that sense, it is now transformed into a publisher. And in working out whether to leave the content up or down rank it or label it or whatever other, you know, content moderations options it has, the platform approaches the content as a publisher would and in so doing enjoys the protection of section 230. And all of this is worked out by Judge Wilkinson in Zarin before any of the drama that we see in the modern day. Um, So good work, Judge Wilkinson. Um, Maybe the way to shift next is to to note, uh, Zarin is named after Kenneth Zarin. Um, It's actually a fascinating story. A few days after the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, his phone starts ringing off the hook He's getting these threatening calls, some of which include death threats. Um, Someone, it turned out, had posted on an America Online bulletin board an ad offering uh, naughty Oklahoma t-shirts. One of them said, visit Oklahoma, it's a blast. Uh, Some of them were actually more offensive than that. Um, And bearing uh, Ken Zarin's home phone number to call to buy these things. He had nothing to do with it, he says um he couldn't determine who created the posts uh and because of section 230 he had no recourse against AOL for failing to take his plight seriously um and that you know that sounds pretty pretty lame and actually and uh professor Kossoff is very good at digging into this like you know that story was a portent of things to come um and again Uh, going to the, the, maybe the flip side of like how marginalized voices are protected by 230. You know, a lot of the worst stuff that happens on the internet is harassment, racism, uh, misogyny. And so uh, people see these things happen. And there is a narrative that section 230 basically enables it to happen. And I think two things can be true at once, that those things are Um, highly problematic. And in discrete cases, I have to be careful in framing this because I don't want to be misunderstood. In discrete cases, section 230 is immediately seen as the thing giving cover to that behavior. While at the same time, it is not necessarily the thing that would, um, you know, getting rid of it would somehow create less of that behavior. Uh, Do I have that right? Uh, Do do you want to weigh in here?
1: Sure. Yeah. No, it's the, the, Facts in so many of the different Section 230 cases are often really just awful and gut-wrenching because there are a lot of genuine kinds of abuse and harm that people suffer and that people kind of do to each other through the medium of the internet. Um, And, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for plaintiffs who are yes, very intentionally trying to go after an online service provider, some kind of platform or website or forum, because either they actually can't find the person who is harassing them or defaming them or attacking them and sort of issuing a threat at them in some way, or that person is completely judgment proof, and there's no way that they could actually get any kind of meaningful recovery against them, or that the harm that the person's really feeling is is even less that initial posting of the content, but the fact that now, Thousands or millions of people can see that content, and so there's. It's. I think there is a very understandable logic to people wanting to go to intermediaries as that point of control, as that entity that could say, you know, remove the content or do something else that um, you know is responsive to the the concerns that the victim has. But I think one thing that's really really crucial to remember when we think about the role of Section Two Thirty is it is shielding intermediaries from liability for illegal content posted by their users. And in a lot of different circumstances, the underlying content is not necessarily illegal, whether it's most forms of hate speech in the United States, things like disinformation that are pretty much going to be protected by the constitution. There are definitely kinds of harassment that are illegal, but there's a lot of harassing and intimidating and just short of the legal standard of threatening kind of content on online services that many of us actually want to see intermediaries take action against, right? We want to see them have policies that make an online service a space where we feel comfortable operating. For some people that might be having very permissive policies. For others, it might be having very locked down policies that are, you know, have a a zero tolerance policy for things like hate and harassment section 230 is what enables intermediaries to have those kind of policies and actually kind of uh, and actually enforce them or create these different kinds of environments without fear of lawsuits for the fact that they are taking down what in many cases is the constitutionally protected speech of other users um, and so this is where the whole question of sort of if you took section 230 away what would happen there would certainly be some lawsuits about truly illegal, you know, issuing of true threats or specific kinds of harassment um, that might be able to be borne out against intermediaries. But for a lot of the kind of abusive online content that we think about, there would still be no real cause of action to to bring against the online intermediary because the underlying speech here in the United States is not illegal. Um, So when we think about kind of the big picture and systemic role that Section 230 plays, understanding those dynamics that the whole reason, you know, Cox and Wyden framed the whole section for Section 230 as the Good Samaritan protection for blocking and filtering of content. It was some of this recognition that there is a job here that we want to see these intermediaries do, and that job is. Taking down or restricting access to other people's constitutionally protected speech, and that is not something Congress can do directly. That is not a law that Congress can pass to require intermediaries to take action against lawful speech. That's not to say Congress has not considered passing some such laws. Uh, you know, that's a that whole the whole duty of care concept is a, a another podcast entirely. Um, but at the core of it we're talking about our, is there illegal speech at issue and so much of the abuse that we want to see addressed by intermediaries, we need them to basically voluntarily take action against.
0: Yeah. And I mean, let us not forget that going back to what you said about the, the litigation dynamics, if you get rid of section 230, there's actually a really good chance you're just entrenching the major players who can afford to fend off nuisance suits, even if you know they're ultimately futile, go through the discovery and get to summary judgment or trial the way you'd have to do if you didn't have Section 230 and that the actual people would be harmed would be, uh, you know, upstarts who can't afford that kind of thing. Um, well, uh, actually before before we dive into Gonzales versus Google, um, talking about, you know, what would happen in a world without Section 230, actually I think that uh, that's a good segue to FOSTA. Um, And CDT has done a lot of good work in this area, and um, it is a great example of um, almost, not not exactly lab conditions, but like an experiment in what happens when you get rid of Section 230 and some of the uh, unintended consequences. So um, could you tell us, please, about uh, CDT's, uh, well, let me back up what happened with FOSTA, um, what its effects were, and, you know, CDT's role here.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, So FOSTA, or the sort of full name of FOSTA SESTA, uh, was a pair of bills that were introduced in Congress a couple of sessions ago um, that were initially really framed around the issue of child sex trafficking, uh, which obviously abhorrent crime um, and something that you know, no member of Congress is, wants to seem weak on the issue of child sex trafficking. So, you know, very much posed in this posture of how could Congress do anything but um, pass something to help deal with this, you know, horrible problem. Um, the focus of, of FOSTA and SESTA that was on this question of the role of online services. And in particular, they were looking at online advertising sites and, it, and especially backpage.com. Um, They were reacting to actually a series of different cases um, that had come up through the different circuits where many, like every different court that looked at the issue said that Backpage, in particular, um, was shielded from liability for sex trafficking, including child sex trafficking ads that appeared on its service, um, and that Section 230 shielded Backpage as the uh, publisher of those ads um, and meant that victims could not recover against Backpage's website uh, for the fact that someone had used Backpage to to traffic them. this was the sort of the posture of the bills and the very much the the framing of the debate around the bills but ultimately what passed through congress was the first ever amendment to section 230 and some changes to federal criminal law around the promotion or facilitation of prostitution which is a much much broader category of activity including activity that involves consenting adults um, and really was a, a significant kind of expansion of focus from the the kind of focus on child sex trafficking that foster and Sesta started with um, so this gets uh, passed into law back is also um, taken offline by federal prosecutors but they didn't use foster Sesta to do it they used existing um, federal criminal law that had been already on the books and was already available um, to bring charges of uh I'm going to get the exact charges wrong, but to, to bring federal charges against um, the executives of Backpage, that case is still ongoing. It's probably a whole other podcast worth of material of like the ins and outs of how uh, how challenging the prosecution of that case has actually been. Um, but Fosta Fosta Sesta just was you know appeared on the scene, and pretty much as soon as um, Congress had. Uh, voted on it. And maybe even before it was signed into law, we started seeing online services um, react really aggressively to a lot of different kinds of sexual content on their services. Um, and the upshot was that the language in fosta CESTA is so vague and so hard to understand exactly what is now illegal and what intermediaries may be liable for that different services were taking a, you know, better safe than sorry approach so for example craigslist shut down their entire adult services section um this is an adult services section that had already been the case uh, the subject of different um legal challenges over the years where courts had found that like of course there's plenty of lawful speech that happens in in this section on craigslist this is not something that is per se illegal the intermediary is shielded from liability for for Hosting other people's lawful speech. Um, so Craigslist shut down their service. Um, I think Reddit shut down a number of different subreddits. Uh, and there was just generally this sense that it was getting going to get much, much harder for people who were not, we're not talking about people who were like, actively and overtly engaged in child sex trafficking. We're talking about people who are sex workers, who are themselves consenting adults, who are engaged in activity that may be lawful in some jurisdictions and is unlawful in other jurisdictions. And we're talking about people who are working on behalf of sex workers' rights, um, trying to advocate for the health and wellness of sex workers, providing information about um, how to do sex work safely, Uh, websites hosting things like bad date lists where sex workers can actually exchange information with each other about, you know, this person is bad news, stay away from them. Um, A lot, there was the, I've, been had the fortunate, uh, the, the benefit to um, work alongside some different advocates in the sex worker community and come to realize like how incredibly organized and passionate and what a sort of mutual aid community within the, the sex worker community really exists. And there were a lot of resources and a lot of efforts of people to try to help each other out and keep each other safe and understand, um, you know, what the how to be a sex worker in a world where you are constantly being pushed to the margins of society, of the legal system, of the healthcare system, etc. Fosta Sesta put all of that in jeopardy um, and really pushed a lot of speech that is would absolutely be considered by courts to be lawful and constitutionally prospective speech right to the margins with anything that might be considered obviously, you know, promotion of illegal prostitution. Um, and that I think is. A really important uh, important lesson to learn. I mean, this was this was not a surprise to anybody who had been advocating against FOSTA-SESTA from the beginning, including a lot of different sex workers' rights advocates and digital rights groups like CDT and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We were trying to help people understand that this was going to be the inevitable consequence of these laws, um, and since FOSTA Assessor has been in action, Um, different groups like Hacking Hustling have done, documented extensively the the really negative impacts um, on sex workers and people kind of loosely affiliated with the um, sex worker community, uh, not just in the US, but around the world. There are, you know, there are people who are engaged in sex work that is lawful in the countries where they live, who are not able to get payment processors to process payments or websites, um, web hosting providers to host their websites because those businesses have a connection with the United States and are afraid of the liability that they might face under this law. So it's a really important object lesson in what a ham-fisted amendment of Section 230 can bring about and how unwilling intermediaries are to take on a legal risk over the content that they host right it's the i think you can um it can be easy to misunderstand advocates for section 230 as being sort of on the side of the companies all the time right of trying to say like the companies need and deserve this legal shield in some way Um, i really do care about small website operators being able to have a legal shield but a lot of why i think section 230 is important is because i am very strongly convinced that intermediaries are not going to bother hosting marginal speech and risky content, um, if they face the slightest whiff of legal liability for it. Um, 230 has meant that they haven't had to make that trade off, as you know, as directly or as clearly, they've intermediaries certainly face pressure from um, third parties like advertisers, or government officials or law enforcement or other users, um, but that the difference between general pressure and the risk that you will get hauled into court and have to defend on the stand your decision to host whatever content somebody doesn't like or is upset about, um, that's just not a risk that intermediaries are going to take on. And we've really seen that play out with Lost Assessed, where huge amounts of speech that are lawful (laughs) and eminently defensible and, and in my opinion, good contributions to public discourse um, and understanding about how the world actually works. All of that stuff coming down to uh, right along with anything that might be colorably considered illegal content
0: yeah one area of the law that at least as far as i know was pretty murky before section 230 was the nature of distributor liability it seems like it was never quite worked out um quite what the c enter the knowledge standard should be um i often think of it as you get rid of Section 230. It's like a notice and takedown regime where anytime somebody says that's defamatory, you know, the platform immediately takes it down, but maybe not so. And you did a great job of explaining in the area of FOSTA, the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. I guess I should spell out the acronym. Like so many congressional laws, the name is kind of misleading in light of your explanation. Um, It... You know, a lot of people are just going to, they're not gonna get that far. They're just gonna play it safe and take it all down in part because it's it's not quite clear. Like I highly doubt. Let's say you get rid of section two thirty and a platform decided, we're gonna go the distributor route. Our goal, we're just gonna not do any content moderation. We're gonna put our head in the sand. I really doubt that when they got sued for something on their content, the judge would go, well, you know, you're in good shape. You know, you, you, you made sure that there was no customer hotline. You made sure that there was no email address. You went out of your way to make sure that people could not contact you and give you knowledge of what was on your thing. Okay, you're cool. You know, case dismissed. I really don't think that's how it's going to play out for sites that go would try to go that route. Um,
1: i mean especially if you're a website that is also operating outside of the us and in particular in europe you're just not going with the the digital services act which is europe's new revamp of their intermediary liability laws it, you will you will not be permitted by law to hide your head in the sand you will have to depending on the size of the service conduct risk assessments or have other tools and processes and procedures in place so users can submit notices to you so right like when we think about. We're talking a lot about U.S. law here, but it's always good to remember, like these are global platforms. So even if they the U.S. law compliance strategy really was hide their head in the sand, you know, to your point, I don't think courts today would really buy that and would really say, oh, that makes you just like CompuServe. So we'll just apply that, uh, you know, that case precedent, and um, you're good to go. That seems extremely unlikely. And whether a company could even operate like that is much more questionable today than it was in the 90s.
0: Yeah. I, I As I recall, CompuServe didn't even resolve, you know, CompuServe got off the hook because they didn't know. And it was just left hanging. As with Aliadzer Smith, you know, what would have happened? In fact, um, I believe Hustler had a case with a store, a shop in like Montana, where this is all in Kossoff's book where they, they went back and shoved the magazine in his face and said, this has a cartoon that's defamatory. You know, they tried to play it out. And it, I don't think it ever really got us an answer. It's It, it seems to be unresolved. Um, and I will note on your behalf. So CDT filed an amicus brief in an effort to, you know, get FOSTA declared unconstitutional. That is ongoing. That has been going at the uh, pace that litigation sometimes goes. There's been interlocutory appeals it has been dragging out. So maybe, hopefully, we'll get an answer for that in, uh, in due course. Turning to the headline Section 230 case at the Supreme Court this term, Gonzalez versus Google, I discussed this case on a... Um, content moderation potpourri was the title of the episode we did uh, over the summer. And it was one of three or four topics that we discussed. And when I introduced this case, I said um, that it had some of the hallmarks of cases that get granted by the Supreme Court. And after the episode, after being done recording, I thought, eh, you know, I kind of overplayed that. I mean, there's no circuit split. Like I said, like, yeah, kind of, it's kind of high profile, but like, I kind of overstated that on the episode. That's what I thought to myself. Uh, And here we are, Uh, it got granted. Um, The fact that there, well, let me back up half a step. The Supreme Court typically takes no interest in statutory interpretation unless the courts of appeals disagree about the meaning of the statute. Only then do the justices step in to resolve the dispute. Um, And when it comes to the targeted recommendations theory that we'll get into a bit in a moment, uh, you have two circuits, the Ninth Circuit out on the West Coast and the Second Circuit, which is New York and a bit more. Uh, They've held that Section 230 governs as normal They've rejected this theory. Um, There's been some dissenting opinions, but that normally is not, that uh, dissenting opinions does not a circuit split make. Um, So the fact that the court is granted review in Gonzales in the absence of a circuit split is an ominous sign that some of the judges, uh, justices have an itch to do mischief here. Um, Okay, with that uh, aside, uh, ISIS uh, engaged in a terrorist attack in uh, November 2015 in Paris, and you Nohemi know, Gonzalez was tragically killed in that attack. Um, there is no direct link between YouTube and Gonzalez's death. There's no evidence that YouTube was used to like plan the attacks or directly recruit any of the attackers. Uh, needless to say, YouTube was not directly soliciting terrorist content. Um, but I, as far as I'm aware, it is true, they had terrorist content on their site that you could find as of 2015. I think they've made a lot of effort uh, in that regard since then. Um, nonetheless, Gonzalez's family sues Google's, uh, sorry, YouTube's owner, which is Google or Alphabet or whatever word, name we're using, um, claiming that around the time of the tax, you know, those videos were up there, uh, the trial court applies section 230 and dismisses the case. Um, applying prior precedent, the Ninth Circuit affirms with separate opinions that maybe we can get into. Um, We've talked earlier about what it means to be a publisher. And the simplest understanding of this case is that recommending content to users is classic publisher behavior. It's like what a newspaper does when it puts a story on A1 instead of D6. But, you know, analogies give out, lawyers are always trying to uh, use a different analogy or, you know, make different arguments. So uh, with that table setting, please let, uh, what do you think of the case? What's going on? Um, What's the deal?
1: Yeah, that, that is the million dollar question. Um, (laughs) I think a lot of us who are following the case or planning to file an briefs are really trying to sort out because as you said, it's, there's not a clear circuit split that the court is poised to resolve. And this is the first time that the Supreme Court will actually address a Section 230 case. So the field is wide open, or at least it fields that way, um, and feels very much like there are any number of different directions the court could go. So, you know, there's a sort of cottage <laughs> industry of prognostication about which justices might think what about Section 230 or terrorist content, or YouTube um, going on right now because it is it is really difficult to predict. Uh, probably the the justice who has most shown his cards is Justice Thomas, who's written a couple of sort of signing statements or advisory opinions on denials of cert that the court has made um, in a couple of previous cases involving Section 230, where Justice Thomas lays out, you know, he he does not care for the statute at all um, and has also advanced some ideas that Maybe these large services should be common carriers. So I think people feel pretty confident that that Justice Thomas thinks that uh, something about the interpretation of Section 230 needs to change significantly from what's been pretty significantly consistent across all of the circuits um, for for many years. Um, But this whole question in, so the the question presented in um, the Gonzalez case is a little strange on its own because it it sort of presumes you know oh well section 230 protects editorial functions which is something we know that at least thomas wants to wants to argue with or investigate Um, but when there are targeted recommendations 230 should not protect that and this is just not a terribly easy distinction to draw between like, what are the different ways that an online service uses algorithms to based on some input from users sort and manage and present to users, some of the vast amounts of user generated content that might be on their service, right, there is a very neutral way of describing that, which I've just tried to lay out that basically describes how almost all online content hosting and search ranking and so many different kinds of ways of technically intermediating user-generated content online just have to operate. Algorithms are everywhere. decisions about, automated decisions about which of some vast amount of content should be shown to which user are happening all the time and everywhere. So if the court has some sort of sweeping decision that says none of that activity is shielded by Section 230, that could be as good as Congress effectively repealing 230, right? That And when I say good, I mean terrible, <laughs> like that could have the same effect as, as Congress repealing 230 because it's there are some kind of activities that an intermediary might do with third party content that wouldn't fall into that bucket, but it would be a pretty small number. And so much of how we all think about accessing content online, navigating content, um, finding information, finding information that's useful to us, all of that ends up having uh, having touched an algorithm at some point and having some kind of recommendation made to us about this might be what you're looking for. This might be the content that you're interested in seeing. Um, but there is also there is a, a much narrower set of cases looking at some of these questions of like very specific targeting of content by intermediaries in the ads context that raise some really interesting questions there have been some um interesting arguments put forward by groups like upturn and aclu and the lawyers committee about there may be some kinds of ad targeting where you can really establish that the intermediary is the only source of what ended up being illegal about that ad that kind of presumes you're in the world of for example civil rights statutes that have um restrictions on uh discriminatory publishing of ads for like housing or credit or employment so a a narrow set of cases where there's existing law that already has you know discriminatory display of ads as something that might be illegal to do where you might be able to isolate particular action by an intermediary that's interesting again another whole podcast to talk about uh kind of those issues but none of those sorts of facts are in front of the court in these cases this is the the kinds of activities by intermediaries that are the basic kind of described in the the plaintiffs concerns about, you know, that that form the basis of their case are so much more just general users upload content to a service, that content gets shared with some users and not with other users, and is the intermediary liable for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where you know, for folks like me, a lot of the concern about where the court might go on these cases really lies. It's, there might be some interest in really trying to dig deep into some of the trickiest and most specific questions about the extent of Section 230 protection. But this case actually seems like a pretty standard and straightforward set of 230 type case examples. Um, And, and that if they're really looking to do something of the law on the basis of this case that could be um just a, a seismic impact to how the law around third-party content hosting and searching for information on the internet works in this country
0: yeah i have to confess i don't um, I don't really get it at the end of the day. Um, you know, the argument runs basically that the exceptional targetedness of algorithmic recommendations makes them special. It's not like a newspaper putting something on a one because YouTube is tailoring its result to me. And as you mentioned, you know, p- problem number one, uh, when I do a Google search, that's what it's doing. And are you saying that search engine, are are you like, the way I've put it is: Are the justices really so hostile to big tech that they'd be willing really willing to run the risk of trashing search engines? Right, um, but then turning to the actual law um, again, you know, targeting content at people is what publishers do, and it's unclear to me why a publisher, sorry, well, a platform acting as a publisher should lose its Section two hundred and thirty protection for targeting well. Um, And it's right up there in the purposes and intent of the law. It's written into the law at the beginning of Section 230 that one of Section 230's goals is to promote the continued development of the internet. So there is a degree to which the platform is like, we've developed the internet. And then um, I don't think it's really for a court to say, great, now we can. There's no sunset clause in Section 230 that says, once platforms have improved the internet, Section 230 shall expire. Uh, It doesn't say that.
1: and it would be so, yeah. strange to think that of people agreeing that the internet we have now is we're good, right? Like that's, that's all we want from it. That it's operating optimally. And this is right. Like that, if we were going to pick an end point of the development of the internet, this would be a really strange, like slice of time to decide like, yeah, this is, this is the status quo that people are happy with.
0: Oh, that's such a great point. I, I, and, and that, kind of connects to a lot of the wider tech lash. And I see that in laws from across the spectrum from Florida. When I look at Florida's laws and Texas's laws, I think that frankly, when I look at California's laws that they've just been passing, I think the same thing. It it sort of takes the internet completely for granted. And um, they've decided that now is the moment to basically turn the world of Bites back into the world of atoms and put the equivalent of like a strict building code on the internet is what seems to be happening to me. And um there seems to be this total forgetting of what the internet did. I mean, the the media used to talk at us, and that is how it worked. I mean, maybe you could write a letter to the editor that would maybe get read by somebody or not and get thrown in the trash, but the internet is really what empowered us to talk to one another you know speak up to collaborate like on wikipedia to protest and to be heard and far too few people seem sufficiently worried that curtailing section 230 support for user generated content might destroy what makes the internet great i mean we're all so focused on what um what bad thing that other person is saying on the internet. And there's not enough attention to the fact that it it is empowering all of us to speak. All of us normies, like me, who, you know, I'm not getting invited onto NBC anytime soon. It's like, the internet is how I speak. I don't know about everybody else.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it is hard. I think the further away we get from the early 90s, when frankly, probably some of the listeners to this podcast weren't even born yet. Um, And for those of us who were around, remembering what the media ecosystem was like in the early 90s and how it reflected the ideas and opinions and what was entertaining or newsworthy or worthwhile of a very small subset of people, um, the kinds of information, the kinds of entertainment, the kinds of fictional narratives and documentaries, whatever else that you might news reporting that, you know, you might want to understand as part of your information environment, was just in the hands of such a very few number of people. And today, we all have the power to advance our own narratives to which also leads into a conversation about disinformation. But, you know, there's so much power, positive power and benefit that I do think we can take for granted pretty substantially um as far as like well of course the internet enables that and that's not going anywhere um and i don't think that gets weighed enough in a lot of the trade-offs that people think of when they think we should substantially change how all of this works we should change how the legal structures um and legal systems work there is no guarantee that we would all have access to a Low barrier to entry, no gatekeepers, decentralized, open communication system. It was revolutionary when that was rolled out. And we're living through what that revolution means. And that is a sometimes very scary and incredibly disruptive time. Um, But to me, the goal has to be how do we preserve that benefit? of expression and access to information for so many more people and so many more perspectives than ever before in human history while also taking serious efforts to address the genuine harms and abuse and um you know real negative effects that that people also experience um because of how other people use the internet
0: emma this has been a blast um, I actually think we've covered a pretty, pretty good amount of ground, and yet there's actually so much more about Section 230 that we're going to have to um, leave by the wayside for now. Um, I, I am tempted to do just a Section 230 fallacies episode that only popped up to me after <laughs> this recording. Now, that,
1: that might have to happen. And
0: if it does, expect an email. Um, thank you so much. <laughs>
1: Oh, thank you. It was uh, great to talk through all of this, and I'm sure there will be more news about all of this on a maybe near daily basis coming up soon.
0: More to come in the world and on the tech policy podcast with me, your host, Corbin Barthold. I've been joined by Emma Alonzo of the Center for Democracy and Technology. Until next time.